This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, William Boyd on his new novel... Trio. William Boyd is the author of 15 novels, including The Good Man in Africa, winner of the Whitbread Literary Award and the Somerset Maugham Award, An Ice Cream War, winner of the John Llewellyn Rees Prize and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, Any Human Heart, winner of the Prix Jean Monnet, and Restless, winner of the Costa Novel of the Year, the Yorkshire Post Novel of the Year, and a Richard and Judy selection. And William's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Trio. William, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So first of all, can I get you to describe Trio for us? Trio is basically a book about the secret life of three people, two women and a man. And they're all connected, some quite obviously and some more loosely, to a film that's being made in Brighton in 1968. And the year is quite important, in fact. And this film is one of these wacky, zany British comedies, rom-coms that we seem to make in the 1960s. But that's just the context for their private lives and their secret lives. And slowly but surely over the course of the novel, which takes place over the summer of 1968 their secret lives overwhelm their public lives and uh, some survive and some don't well let's talk about that time period then as you said it's important and indeed at one point in the novel we do end up in Paris so why 1968 well it's an interesting I was 16 in 1968 so I have quite strong memories of that year and in a way my memories are typical because I can't really remember much about 1968 that made it uh, very distinctive. But in fact, in the world context, 1968 was almost a bit like 2020. I think there was a, a real feeling of unease and panic about in the world, partly because the Vietnam War was in full swing. The Tet Offensive had begun in January. Half a million American troops were beleaguered by the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. There were huge anti-war protests in America. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. 
in France. There was a near-French revolution uh, in May and June, riots in the streets of Paris. In Germany, there was a huge uh, social upheaval, again led by students, the same in Italy, the same in Mexico. It seemed that the world was in a kind of turmoil. And as the year went on, it got worse because the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. Um, there were the riots in the Democratic Convention in 1968 within Chicago. And so the whole tenor of the year was one of going to hell in a handcart. And, but here in Britain, we had a, f a few little upheavals. But basically, what was on our mind was, you know, were the Beatles going to stay together as a band or would they split up? That's a bit of a parodic, facetious thing to say. But there's a real sense when you look at histories of the 60s that certainly in 1968, what was happening in Britain was kind of frivolous and hedonistic and self-absorbed. But what was going on in the rest of the world was really serious mayhem. So the, the book is called Trio, and indeed it features three main characters. And we'll, we're going to talk about each in turn. What I would normally say is something along the lines of, so Talbot Kidd, who is he? Tell us who he is. But a major, a major theme of this book is identity and secret lives, secret identities, secret inner lives. Almost everybody in the book has pseudonyms, nom de plumes, nom de guerres, um, stage names. Tell us about this idea of identity in the book. Well, it comes from a, a quote that uh, I use as an epigraph. It's from Anton Chekhov, and Chekhov said, uh, and I paraphrase slightly, that most people live their real most interesting lives under cover of secrecy. And that idea really uh, appealed to me. And I think it's very true. I mean, we all have secret lives. Um, they needn't be dramatic, but there's a real sense in which the person you are is composed of the of the face you present to the world and the people in your circle and your, your loved ones. And then there is the, the life that you lead internally. And I think that what I looked at in, in the case of Trio and in my particular three people was a sense of a, a secret life that was almost stirring, you know, slightly out of control or beginning to threaten to overcome this public face that the characters present to the world. So that's where I got the idea from. And of course, a film is a very good context for that because you're pretending to be somebody else. Film is artifice and artificial. You're creating a story that is a fiction, not a fact. And so the whole atmosphere, as you point out, is one of, of duplicity to a certain extent, benign or malign. And indeed, the very first section of the book is called Duplicity, uh, just to, to set up this idea that things are not as they appear to be. Having said all of that, let's let's go in and do it mm. anyway. So Talbot yeah. Kidd, who is he? Well, Talbot Kidd is a man in his 60s. Um, he's uh, an ex-military man. He had a good war uh, in World War II, but he's also a film producer, and he's charged with producing this rather silly film that's being made in Brighton, which has a very, a very silly title, which is Emily Bracegirdle's Extremely Useful Ladder to the Moon. Something about British comedies or British romantic comedies of the 60s seemed to be attracted to long and rather idiotic titles. And uh, Emily Bracegirdle is no exception. But Talbot is a man, I don't want to give away too much, but he's, he's unsure of his sexuality, let's put it that way. He's married, he has two grown-up children, but his gay nature, if you like, is his secret life. And it's a very elaborately evolved secret life in that he has another 
name, he has another address, and he has a whole erotic, if you like, um, world that he keeps sequestered and secluded in another part of London. But on the surface, he's a rather proper, sardonic um, gent, I suppose you'd say. But underneath it, there is somebody far more unsure and uncertain. And so this is a time, 1968, when homosexuality had had, had very recently been decriminalised. Talbot yes. is he's one of that generation of men as you said he's he's lived a lie all his life he's potentially lived a lie um he's he's married with children he's of an age where he may not be able to take advantage of that liberalization Exactly. I think it's very destabilizing for him. And homosexuality was legalized um, in 1967. So if you like, the new liberties have only been abroad for, for a few months. And, uh, and Talbot is finding this very strange. In fact, interestingly enough, the armed forces were excluded from that liberalization. And it wasn't until, le- until later that um, it was all, all okay for soldiers and sailors and airmen to uh, admit the true nature of their sexuality. Um, but Talbot is, is a, a very uncertain person entering this brave new world of uh, homosexual liberty and um, is finding it difficult. The next one of the trio, Elfrida Wing. Tell us something about her. Well, Elfrida Wing is uh, in her 40s and she's a novelist and she's married to the uh, director of the film. So her connection with the film is, is more tangential, but she's staying with her husband in a, in a house just outside Brighton. So she's very much within the wider orbit of the, of the film unit, though she's not actually contributing to the, the making of the film at all. And Elfrida had quite a successful start in life as a novelist she's written three successful novels and she was known she became known as the new virginia wolf but she's she's now in a 10-year writer's block she hasn't written anything for 10 years and she's turned uh, very seriously to drink as a result of that so her secret is that she's a, a raging alcoholic and she can't write anymore and you know the wheels are beginning to fall off her particular life you say that she's, you know, she was called the the next Virginia Woolf, and and I really enjoyed the way in which she hates this. She's not particularly keen on the work of a Virginia Woolf, and it's basically something that, as a novelist, has plagued her entire career, rather than been a good thing. Yes, it's uh, one of these pigeonholes that you're thrust into, like it or not. And Elfrida is quite a feisty character, and she's very smart, and she actually doesn't like Virginia Woolf's novels very much, and she resents this label, which is is plastered all over her her books as a way of selling them and she's she's trying if you like to to escape that particular labeling and the way she comes up with this idea of writing a book about Virginia Woolf's last day somehow thinking that if she manages to do this she'll a get rid of her writer's block and b you know get the monkey off her back to a certain extent by talking about Virginia Woolf's death during World War II when she committed suicide by drowning herself so there's a kind of Virginia Woolf theme running through Elfrida's life uh, some of it unwelcome and some of it a potential exit route and she tries to exploit that as as the novel goes on. I 
again, we're not going to give too much away about what happens as the novel proceeds, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Elfrida's comic attempts to write that first paragraph of this book, which she begins with, I should say, the the perfect first paragraph, for reasons that um, I'll let readers discover for themselves, but then just keeps rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Yes, it's in a way, it's, it's the perfect symbol of her, her block. She um, All she's been able to do for the last 10 years is come up with titles for novels. She's never actually sat down and begun to write one. And when she has this idea, she, she comes up with the, the first three or four sentences of the Virginia Wolf novel, but she's permanently dissatisfied with what she's written. So in the course of the novel, you get this, this, this the first paragraph of this never-to-be-written novel revised and revised again. It's a form of you know massive procrastination, of course, and I think writer's block is a form of, of terrible procrastination. And Elfrida, because also her, her alcoholism, is, uh, is trapped in this kind of cage of trying to break out of the first paragraph and never actually manages to do it quite. Let's talk about the the third of the trio then. So Annie Vickland, who's a young, beautiful actress, American actress of, of Swedish heritage, coming over to work in Europe. And as I was reading the book, I must admit, I had, I kept picturing Jean Seberg, the actress whose, whose career took, in some ways, rather a similar path to Annie's, doesn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, Annie's is sort of based on or or loosely based on Gene Seberg in that uh, there are similarities between the, their lives and also their their fates to a certain extent and like Gene Seberg Annie Vicklund had massive fame and massive wealth and notoriety thrust upon her and she's very young she's in her 20s and as with many young people sort of similarly blessed with this good fortune is actually something of a curse rather than a blessing and she finds she's finding it very hard to keep her life on the rails and um, she's made a series of disastrous emotional choices in her life and uh, she's sort of flailing around a bit and she's come over to Britain to be in this silly film and in a way everything comes to a head and the, the, the building crisis detonates as a real crisis and Annie is rather at the mercy of this you know fatal whirlwind that's beginning to encompass her. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
you're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to William Boyd, and we're talking about his latest novel, Trio. And William, I want to talk about the setting of the novel in the film world. And we've already talked about this idea of, of identities, and obviously, you know, films, and of course, you know, Elfrida's novel, literature as well, fiction. But particularly in terms of film, you've worked in the film industry yourself in various different roles, and I wanted to talk about to what extent your own experiences might have informed this novel. Well, it's true. I have worked in in films and television almost from the beginning of my writing career. My first novel was published in 1981, and the first film I wrote was made in 1982. So for 40 years almost, I've had these parallel careers of being a, a novelist and a screenwriter writer. And over the years, my role has developed. I've been a co-producer and a producer, and I've actually directed a feature film myself as well. So I know that world inside out, right from the beginning, the very glimmerings of a film through to post-production and the, you know, the final sound edit, etc., etc. So it's a, it's a natural world for me to write about. And it's a very fickle world. That's the thing that makes it very attractive for a novelist. Things that go wrong all the time. And I have my share of horror stories and disasters, just like anybody else who's had a career in the, in the film industry. I'm lucky that I've had a lot of films made. I've had about 20 films made over the years and television series and so on. And I'm still working away in it. It, actually, I, if I didn't have films or TV series made, I'd, I'd pack it in because the downside is actually uh, quite significant when you're working in the film industry. And so I was able to use a lot of my experiences or things I've observed or things I've heard about to paint the picture of uh, this rather rackety, disaster-prone movie, Emily Bracegirdle. Um, and it's all very authentic. It's funny as well. I mean, I should say, actually, that Trio is a is a comic novel, essentially, but with, with dark undercurrents. And a lot of the comedy emerges from the sort of daily disasters that arrive on a film set. And um, believe you me, I'm not exaggerating anything. Well, we're going to talk about the writing of a comic novel in a moment, but um, let's, let's just stick on the on this film, because this film is Emily Bracegirdle. It is, I mean, truly a stinker. It sounds like even just reading descriptions of this film make your teeth ache. It's, it seems like it's going to be one of those, as you said. I want to talk about that period of of the British film industry and indeed some of the some of the characters that work within these these absolute terrible figures um, Ferdy and Sylvia which seem like actors ripped straight out of a carry-on film or something Yes, it's it's an interesting little moment in British film history and I, I wrote a piece about it um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, I think I can start it from 1964 when uh, Richard Lester made uh, a Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night and um, it's everything that's sort of zany and wacky and full of pratfalls and nods and winks that you get in these British films is sort of set rolling by Dick Lester in, in that Beatles movie. But there were masses of films made between 1964 and 70 that sort of fit that same bill. And if you think Emily Bracegirdle's Extremely Useful Ladder to the Moon is a stupid title, I can rattle off a few others. There was a film made called 30 is a Dangerous Age, Cynthia. There was a film made called Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, The Knack and How to Get It, and the stupidest one of all, which is really my template for Emily Bracegirdle. There's a film that Anthony Yuley made 
directed and starred in and starred his then wife Joan Collins as well, which was called Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness? beat that for a stupid title so my title actually seems quite reasonable in the face of nudie's film but that but it's uh, it, they are they were a kind of mishmash of of every technique and uh, and also quite pretentious sometimes they try to you know mimic italian movies or french movies but there was basically a kind of wacky zany sexy feel to them lots of popular music very up to the moment, very, very fashionable, very trendy. And Emily Bracegirdle is no exception. And we have a famous American film star in the shape of Annie Vicklund. But we also have a, a young British pop star called Troy Blaze, who's trying to resurrect his career. Um, you think of Adam Faith and uh, Billy Fury and Tommy Steele, similar pop stars of that era. None and of, of which course... were their real names. <laughs> no, exactly. That's None of Troy. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Troy's real name is Nigel Farr. And all the characters in the film, from the sort of walk-on parts to the the stars, are you know, very typical of that era. Ferdy Mears uh, or Sylvia Slay, you know, could Sylvia Slay could be a sort of Diana Dors mm. figure. Ferdy Mears could be a sort of I don't know Sid James, Charles Hawtrey figure. Um, they're very much of their time, and the film that they're making is very much of its time as well. And well, I wanted to talk about some of the other characters as well, that these are all minor characters in the novel that often only appear for a, a page or two. But every character in this book is is so vividly written. They come alive with just the, the tiniest sketch. And I, and I wanted to talk about that, how you, how you go about creating one of these minor characters. I think, for instance, of... I can't remember his name, but the guy who's the who's written the pamphlet that um, about Virginia Woolf Sussex. Oh yes, that Elfrida goes and goes and meets and buys forty of his pamphlets. Yes. Um, they're just there for for a moment, but they're recognisable characters. How do you do it? Well, I think I always think names are very important, and uh, I always take great care to name my characters well. And I I look for names that are not totally silly, but have a slight idiosyncrasy to them. And that idiosyncrasy in their naming also reflects what I believe is true of human nature, that people are generally very odd. People are not stereotypes. And I think as a writer or as a serious novelist, in a way, it's your duty to reflect that complexity and that uniqueness of the, of the individual human beings we all encounter. And so what I try to do, and I think this is why these characters are vivid in a way, is that they're strangeness, their oddness, their their individuality has to be uh, rendered very quickly, either in something they do or something they say, or the way they speak or the way they react. And so if you get that right, very quickly, that character is living and breathing in the novel, even if he or she is only there for maybe two or three pages. So it's a kind of, I think it's a sort of just being true to the strangeness of of human nature. One of my great models 
is Anton Chekhov and Anton Chekhov's short stories, which were written in the end of the 19th century, the, the great mature short stories. And Chekhov seemed to sense this about people. And so when you read his stories, which set in Russia, everybody you encounter, whether it's a peasant or a doctor or an official or, a, or an aristocrat, is somehow immediately slightly strange and slightly odd. And I think it's a, it's a very good tip, actually, to try. The, the more serious you are as a writer, the less you use stereotype. And so it's idiosyncrasy that makes a novel or the details of a novel function and uh, draw attention to themselves. Stereotypical writing is banal and dull, and it's the very opposite of, of real life. Well, I absolutely see the influence of Chekhov, but again, raising Chekhov belies the idea that this is also very much a comic novel, and it is very funny, and that comes through the the characters and also the situations. But as you said, it there is also a deep undercurrent of sadness running through it with all of these characters, and and I wanted to talk about that, you know, writing that change of register, going from very very funny situations that are underlined with pathos. Yes, I think, I mean, again, it's it's the human condition. I think that, um, you know, all, all serious artists, uh, that, not just novelists, are in a way trying to explain life to themselves and to their to their readers or their viewers or their listeners. Um, something about the human predicament, if you like, is perfect for the novel. Um, at the very length of a novel, it, the, the fact that you, you can be incredibly detailed, uh, you can diverge you can uh, have subplots you can spend five pages discussing five minutes allows it to be the art form that i believe best reflects the human condition and so in in your in the novel you write whatever the subject is and whatever the setting or whatever the, the time zone it is fundamentally you're trying to explain this curious adventure we're all on on this small planet circling its insignificant star and um, I think that's where the seriousness comes in because life is absurd life is cruel as well as funny and uh, meaningless and uh, random so I think that as a serious novelist it's again part of your your duty as a novelist to reflect all those aspects of of the human condition in the fiction you write and who would be some of your influences in terms of the comic novel well, actually, Chekhov considered himself a comedian. He said, "All my tragedies are, in essence, <laughs> comedies." Um, so, but I, there, I, I've got some very. Uh, I think Vladimir Nabokov, to mention another writer, is a very, very funny writer and uh, um, very different from me. But somebody I reread. Another writer I greatly admire is uh, Muriel Spark, who is a comic novelist as well. And Muriel Spark developed this brilliant tone of voice to write these terse, very dry comedies, very clever, very distinctive. I also like uh, Evelyn War very much. I think War's masterpieces or his masterworks are his comedies, not his more serious novels. I don't think um, Bride's Head Revisited or A Handful of Dust are in the same league as um, uh, Scoop, for example, which I think is a, a near-perfect comic novel. So there, all these writers... Um, influence me in various ways and um, I think it's also a question of your own understanding that somehow the comic vision of life is truer to life as we experience it rather than the tragic vision. And just one more question then from me and then I'll, I'll ask you to, to read a bit of Trio if you would. As we've already talked about the novel is 
in the main set in Brighton. And as soon as you get into the novel, of course it is. Brighton is the obvious place for this novel to be set. It's perfect. But why? What is it about Brighton? Well, I think it's, I mean, people who live in Brighton might disagree furiously with me. <laughs> but uh, um, Brighton has a reputation outside Brighton of being a rather racy, uh, unusual place where people go to let their hair down. There's a, I think it's, um, I'm not sure if it's Elfrida who says this, but she describes Brighton as the, the Las Vegas of England. Uh, and in the way that Las Vegas functions as a place where you can somehow let your inhibitions disappear and pursue life with a bit more vigor and energy. Uh, so I think Brighton has this reputation, maybe because it's beside the sea, because it's of its history, uh, its social history, but it uh, it has a slightly louche, racy uh, reputation. And of course, it's, it's perfect for the film to be set there and for the novel to be set there. Can I get you to finish it off with a reading then? Yes, well, there's a suitably apt little extract, which is about Brighton, about a pub in Brighton, in fact, where Elfrida likes to go and drink. And the pub is called The Repulse. Elfrida stood at the bar of the snug in The Repulse and ordered another gin and tonic. It was the pub she preferred in Brighton, two streets back from the Esplanade, smallish with a saloon bar as well as a snug and decoratively unfavoured. It boasted only drab, neutral colours, browns, greens, dark grey, nothing themed, nothing garish, no music blaring, no gambling machines or toys for men to play. It was named the Repulse after an early 19th century first-rate ship of the line that went down with all hands in some remote naval battle in the East Java Sea or somewhere, somewhere far from England anyway, forever commemorated here in a modest Brighton pub, paid for by subscriptions raised by the widows of the crew. There was a framed parchment document in the short corridor on the way to the saloon bar that explained the history. Nice idea, Elfrida thought. A fit way of remembering the drowned menfolk, a place where you could drown your sorrows. She thought she'd quite like a pub as a memorial, better than a row of books on a shelf. A little pub somewhere with a sign, the Elfrida Wing. She took her drink back to her table in the corner, toying with the idea, imagining the pub. Her stylized portrait on the sign, bright flowers in window boxes, benches outside, a little beer garden at the back. So I've been talking to William Boyd. We've been talking about his latest novel, Trio, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. William, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.